Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. You're probably thinking, Leviticus? Still? We've, we've spent a lot of time in Exodus and Leviticus, I know, here on Sunday mornings. But, you know, God's covenant relationship with Israel, the rules of the relationship, the Ten Commandments and the law that He gave them to govern this covenant relationship, the tabernacle where God could meet with the people and dwell in their midst, and what we're going to talk about today, the sacrificial system that covered their sins so that they could be God's people and dwell in God's presence. All of these things are critical. They're all important to understanding the rest of the Old Testament story and ultimately understanding Jesus and who He is and what He came to do. So that's why we're spending so much time on these very foundational uh, key issues of the Old Testament. And today we're going to talk about the sacrificial system. Can anybody tell me what the first sacrifice in the Bible was? And who made that sacrifice? God did. And what was it? It was the animal that God killed, the blood that He shed, so that He could make clothes to cover Adam and Eve. You, you remember the story. God created a good world. Adam and Eve were made in His image. They were the first people living in this garden enjoying God's presence, but they rebelled against their holy, loving, good, and gracious God. They, they would rather choose for themselves what is right and wrong than trust in God and what God said is the way the world should work. And so they lost this perfect harmony. They lost this relationship with God. Their relationship with each other was damaged. Their relationship with the creation around them was damaged. And their sin brought death and division and destruction into God's good world. And the first symptom of all of this was that they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. They experienced guilt for the first time. And then they attempted, and, they, and that guilt drove them to hide. They hid from each other and they hid from God. And do you remember what they did to try to hide their guilt and their shame? What did they make for themselves? Clothes out of fig leaves. So they went out and they found the, the biggest leaves I guess they could find. And they tried to sew them together. And I can't imagine how that works. And they tried to cover their guilt, their shame, their nakedness with leaves. Now how pathetic is that? How ridiculous of a solution to their problem is fig leaves. But although their sin and their shame had separated them from God, although God's holiness demanded that they leave the garden... God showed them an act of compassion. One that He would repeat time and time again throughout the Old Testament. With the shedding of blood, through the death of an animal, God made clothing to cover their nakedness. God covered their guilt and their shame. You know, when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, and he went to sacrifice Isaac, God stopped him and provided a ram as a substitution to die in Isaac's place. When God was going to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt and the death angel was coming as the tenth and final plague to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt, God told Israel to sacrifice a spotless one-year-old male lamb and to put its blood over their doorposts. And when the angel would see the blood covering the doorposts, it would pass over and spare the lives of the firstborn of Israel. All of the sacrifices 
in the Old Testament that we read up to this point lead, lead us to understand three critical truths. And they lead us to the ultimate truth of all Scripture and to the turning point of human history. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first critical truth we see is the formidable holiness of God. Read with me in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. You may remember Aaron's two sons, after the tabernacle was built and consecrated, decided just to kind of march right on in without being invited and just to do what they wanted to in there. And God's holiness struck them down. It consumed them immediately. And so after all of that happened, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. Because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and to put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. God's majesty, His glory... His holiness sets Him apart from all of creation. He is to be respected and feared because there is no one like Him. He is good. But to treat His goodness and His glory and His power and His holiness lightly, well, that's, that's foolishness. And it's deadly. And that's what we see in the story in Leviticus 10 when Aaron's sons just march right on in. We see you cannot treat God's holiness flippantly. And a lot of these instructions that God gives that surround how the priests are to prepare for entering the tabernacle and offering the sacrifices and burning the incense, they were given to remind them of their sinfulness and God's holiness. That they must humbly prepare themselves to even enter the presence of their Creator God. The curtain that hung in the tabernacle and later the temple that would separate the holies from the holy of holies, the most holy place, was there as a reminder of the separation that exists between God and His people because of His holiness and our sinfulness. And that the priests don't have the right just to march right on in to God's most holy presence whenever they feel like it. How they handle the sacred objects and the ritual washings and the things that they are to wear are all designed to remind them to treat God with reverence and to come before Him in humility because God is holy. That's the first critical truth. The second one is the pervasive destructiveness of sin. That there was a tabernacle in the first place where God could dwell with His people and they could meet with Him, was itself an act of grace. God longs to be with His people. Even though their sin is an infinite offense, an affront to His holiness that can't be ignored, that can't be just swept under the rug, even though this sin problem existed that had to be dealt with, God still loved and longed to be with His people. Now, in the Bible, we read a wide variety of terms to describe this sin. Terms like impurity, failure, rebellion, transgression, missing the mark, trespassing, iniquity, wickedness, uncleanness, unfaithfulness, and that's just to name a few. The nature of sin is so complex 
A single word can't even begin to capture its essence, how pervasive and destructive it is. And so, just right here in Leviticus 16, we find four different words used to describe sin. Read with me beginning in verse 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He has to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. So one of the words we see here is the word uncleanness. This word reminds us how sin pollutes our heart and our world. Now think about what pollution is. What is pollution? If you go out to your garden... Uh, or to your yard at certain times of the year, you might see pine cones and pine needles in your yard. You may not like those being there, and you want to go up and clean that up, but is that pollution? No. Pollution is something that is foreign to an environment that is introduced, that is destructive. It's unhealthy. Okay, so we pollute rivers when we allow certain trash or chemicals to get into the rivers that can harm or kill the marine life living there, the plants, the animals, the fish, that sort of thing. That's pollution, right? Uh, leaves falling in the river is not pollution. Okay? When we pollute the air, we allow gases and toxins and, and, and things to get into the air that might make it difficult for people to breathe. might cause asthma. could cause all sorts of problems. We call that air pollution. We pollute the soil when things get introduced into the soil that make it unfertile. And crops won't grow and they won't be healthy and they won't produce fruit. The soil's been polluted. Well, similarly, the introduction of sin into the natural human relationship with God, it adds in a foreign agent. It corrupts our relationship with God because of its impurity. Sin is uncleanness. Another word that's used is the word rebellion, or some translations may say transgression. Ultimately, sin is rebellion against a holy God. We decide for ourselves how best to live our lives. We convince ourselves that I get to determine my reality, that I get to determine who I am and how I should live my life and what is right or wrong for me. That is transgression. That is rebelling against God. That's rejecting His definition of who and what you are and how you're supposed to live your life, of what is good and what is right in favor of choosing what is wrong and destructive. That's rebellion. And is that not the heart of what sin is? Is that not what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? Is that not what we see our own society doing today in a variety of issues? Another word used here is the word wickedness or iniquity. Wickedness is the perversion of what God intended for good and turning it into something to satisfy our own selfish, manipulative purposes. 
Wickedness is more than just rebellion. Wickedness takes it a step further. Wickedness seeks to inflict maximum damage. If somebody does something that's wicked, they are basically turning from God, following their own path, and they're not going to let anybody or anything stand in their way, and they leave in their wake death and destruction, broken relationships, broken promises. They just don't care who they hurt along the way. That's wickedness. And then we see the final word, sort of the catch-all word, sin. Which means to miss the mark. Sin is that catch-all word for any attitude or action, whether it's trivial or consequential. Whether it's intentional or unintentional. Whether it's done by commission or omission, it is an offense to a holy God. Now, the use of multiple words to describe sin shows us the comprehensive fallen nature of humanity. It's pervasive. It's destructive. It's a serious problem. Our hearts are so polluted with sin that the image of God cannot flourish within us. Because of our rebellion, we are actually enemies of God and at war with all of creation. We leave behind us a path of destruction because of our wickedness. And our sins are so many that no amount of good works can make up for them and earn our pardon. The solution to this problem then is going to come with a high price. It won't be easy and it won't be pretty. And that brings us to the messy mercifulness of sacrifice. Back in Exodus chapter 34, Moses had asked God to allow him to see God's glory. And God allowed Moses to see the back side of himself, just the shadow, if you will, of his full glory. But as God revealed himself to Moses, listen to what God says of himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, God said this to Moses right after Israel had made the golden calf. Right after Israel had already committed idolatry and broken the brand new Ten Commandments. And God says this to Moses as he has carved up new tablets to give to Moses to replace the ones that Moses broke in anger over their sin. So God is holy. God is just. Sin is a pervasive problem. But God is love. And he loves his people. He is gracious, compassionate, patient, longs to forgive sin. And so God gives Israel a system of sacrifices for the purification of their sin, to make atonement for their sin. And the Day of Atonement was the climax of this Old Testament sacrificial system. It displayed the holiness of God and the depth of humanity's sin. Everything about the Day of Atonement indicated that this was a day of utmost importance. The high priest had these unique rituals and the special dress and all these detailed preparations. The whole community had to abstain from work and rest on that day to reflect on the importance of this ritual because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place to atone for the sins of the people. Look back at verse 5 with me and let's read a little bit about this Day of Atonement. From the Israelite community, he, the high priest, is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Because, see, Aaron wasn't perfect. 
Aaron was not a perfect high priest. He sinned. So before he could go in to make atonement for the sins of the people, guess what? He had to make atonement for himself. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. He is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain, so into the most holy place. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle it, uh, some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. So two goats are required for this. And they had to be healthy, without defect, showing the necessity for a perfect sacrifice, showing the seriousness of sin. And these goats were really one offering with two aspects. Okay, first we had the sacrificial goat. This goat was to be slaughtered as a sacrifice because, as God says later in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, what does this word atonement mean? Well, literally, the English word is exactly what it looks like. It's the word at-one-ment. Atonement, at-one-ment, meaning that God reconciles us to Himself so that we can be at one with God, restoring that relationship with God broken by sin. But the Hebrew word there is the word I really want to look at, and that's the word kippur, which is where we get Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? That's Jews today celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So this word kippur has a threefold meaning. It can mean to cover, it can mean to cleanse, and it can mean to reconcile. And the sacrificial death of this goat did all three of those things. First, its blood literally covered their sins as it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was this area between the two cherubim on the cover, what's called the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And so inside this Ark of the Covenant now are the stone tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. So when God, as He comes down to that holy most holy place in the tabernacle, and he looks down on that Ark of the Covenant. He looks through that cover, and what's he see inside of it? He sees the law which his people have broken. It stands as a testimony against them. And so by sprinkling the blood on the atonement cover, it's as if God, instead of when he looks down at that, he sees the broken law. Instead, God sees the blood that was sacrificed. And it covers, it atones for their sins. Secondly, its blood cleansed the people of their sins. Aaron was supposed to take some of this blood and go throughout the tabernacle and sprinkle it on all the sacred objects in the tabernacle to cleanse them because of the people's sin. So it covered and it cleansed. 
Leviticus 16, 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And thirdly, its death was a means of reconciliation because it was given in exchange for their lives. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. If you sin against me, the consequence is death. Not just physical, but eternal separation from God. And so this animal literally dies in their place. Now think about that word reconciliation. It makes reconciliation for us. When we use that word reconciliation today, we often think that, you know, you've got two parties at war, two friends, it could be spouses, and, and, and if they're going to try to make up, you hope that they can reconcile their differences, right? We use that word reconcile today. Or if you take your checkbook and the bank statement and you reconcile them, what does that mean? It means you have to make them match up and come into alignment. And if the bank says you've got, you know, 73 less dollars than your records show, guess who probably made the mistake? You did. Not always, but most of the time. And so if, if you're going to reconcile, your, whether it's your checkbook or whether it's two people reconciling, somebody has to pay a price. Somebody has to give up something. A change has to be made because there's differences that have to be reconciled. Well, there is a vast difference between you and God. A vast difference. Our sin is the most egregious of errors. And the penalty that must be paid can only be paid through the shedding of blood, through the giving of life. God's holiness and justice must be satisfied, and we deserve to die for our rebellion against our Creator. But the goat was given as a substitute to die in their place, to pay the penalty that is due to people. So that's the sacrificial goat. But there's a second goat, the scapegoat. Look at verses 20 through 22. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place and then assume it dies out there and the man shall release it in the desert, never to come back again. That was a big part of this Day of Atonement that the goat would literally carry the sins of the people away outside of the camp. It, so the sacrificial goat was offered to pay the penalty for the people and to cover their sins. And the scapegoat symbolically carried the people's sins away, never to come back. The scapegoat highlights our need to have our shame and our guilt and our sin removed. We have to get these things taken away. Psalm 103, 11 and 12, the psalmist says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now you think about how far away is the east from the west. If I travel east, 
When will I ever get to the west? You don't. You're forever going east. So if God is sending our sins east and He's sending us west, the idea is that we never meet. That He removes them from us completely. So imagine with me you're a Jew. You're an Israelite living in this time. Imagine with me the relief as you see the high priest emerge from behind that curtain, from the Holy of Holies, and he, he comes out alive. You know what that means? That means as God has accepted the sacrifice. Okay, He did it the right way. God accepted the sacrifice. And you know for a year your sins are covered, that you're clean. And then imagine the relief of watching that goat be led off into the wilderness and to know that it is taking away from you your guilt. What a joyous day that was for the Jews. But guess what? There was also always a tinge of sadness because they knew that it all had to happen again the next year and the next and the next because people could not stop sinning. The need to repeat the atoning sacrifice points to the incompleteness of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It wasn't meant to be God's permanent solution to the problem of sin. It was designed to allow the people of Israel to be in relationship with God so that through them God could someday, once and for all, truly take care of our sin problem. And that brings us to the ultimate day of atonement. You see, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. The high priest, slaughtered goat and scapegoat, these things were shadows that would point us to the ultimate Day of Atonement when Jesus Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins once and for all. You see, Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice on the altar. He is both the lamb that pours out its blood and the scapegoat that carries the sins of the people away from the camp. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could offer the perfect death. And by his stripes, we are healed and forgiven and made clean. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us a few important things about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system. First, it tells us that Jesus is our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. As our high priest, Jesus entered the most holy place in verse 12, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once and for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal, not just annual, redemption. He is our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. And he's also, it tells us in verse 15, the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins. God's holiness and justice were satisfied by Christ's life and death. He fulfilled the law flawlessly and then took our place as the penalty for our sin. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Secondly, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the spotless Lamb who can cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So He died in our place. His blood cleanses us from sin. It also tells us that Jesus is the scapegoat who takes away our guilt. Hebrews 9, 23-28 tells us that Jesus was sacrificed once to take away our sins. And so we no longer need a priest 
to make endless sacrifices for us. Christ has taken away our sin once and for all. And finally, it tells us that Jesus' blood covers our sins, making eternal atonement for us. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, because our sins, in verse 18, have been forgiven, and there is no longer any need for sacrifice for sin anymore. Jesus made atonement for us by exchanging His righteousness for our sinfulness. So that when God, just as when God would look down at that ark of the covenant and see the blood, not the broken law, when God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ, He sees not your sin, but He sees the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, He turned His back because He saw your sin and mine. And when God looks upon you as a believer in Jesus Christ, He sees the righteousness of His Son. That's what Jesus did for us. The cross of Christ is the ultimate climax in the story of atonement. Jesus tore down the dividing wall to give us intimate access to the Father. He achieved for us the redemption, the reconciliation, and the restoration that we so desperately needed but could never do on our own. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from the people was torn asunder. And no longer is it only the high priest one day a year, but you and I every day can enter with confidence into the throne room of God's grace. Now I want to close this morning with Hebrews 10, 19-25 because it tells us what does all of this mean for us today. What difference does all of this make for us? Look with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have been confident since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, because of all of this stuff we've just said, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So very quickly, first... This tells us that we must draw near to God with sincere hearts and in full assurance of faith because we have been completely forgiven and cleansed by the death of Jesus Christ. You remember how weak and pathetic Adam and Eve's temps were to cover their, their sin and their shame with fig leaves? Well, you know what? That's exactly what happens whenever we think that our good deeds and our good religious activities and our turning over new leaves... You know what turning over new leaf is? It's just fig leaves. You're just turning over fig leaves. It's weak. It's pathetic. It doesn't work. Jesus Christ gives us so much more. He doesn't give us fig leaves. He gives us robes of righteousness. He completely cleans us from guilt. He gives us abundant and eternal life. But we have to put our trust in Him in full assurance of faith with sincere hearts. My question this morning is, have you done that? Have you trusted in what Jesus did to save you from your sins instead of yourself? That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. It's to come to the point where you realize that your sins have separated you from God and there's nothing you can do about it. Your sins are too great. You can never reconcile those bank accounts. 
You need Jesus to come in and to be the reconciliation for you. Would you this morning put your trust in Him and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and save you and cleanse you and cover over your sins? Secondly, we see that we have hope to hold on to and proclaim to others. He tells us this this hope that we hold to unswervingly and we profess. As we approach Easter in the next six weeks, I want to encourage you to take this hope that I hope that you hold on to unswervingly and profess it to others. This big invite as we sort of march toward Easter is an opportunity for you and me to go to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family, the people that we see throughout the week, and to invite them to come and worship and hear this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Will you join me in professing this hope that we hold on to. And third, we must spur one another on to love and good work. We have to encourage each other as fellow members of the church, as people who have, who have all likewise been forgiven of our sins by the blood of Christ. We should encourage each other, remind each other of what Jesus has done for us. And we should encourage each other to go out and to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And finally, It says that as a community of forgiveness and grace, we must make a high priority of gathering together to worship and praise the One who paid the ultimate price that we could be made right with God. Will you, this morning, if God is so leading, unite with this church family and say, this is where God wants me to work, to serve, to worship, to encourage and be encouraged to do good works. Will you come this morning and not with First Baptist Church? Or will you at least in your heart make yourself a, a recommitment to God to make worship a priority? To make it a priority to serve in and through the life of this church? That's my prayer for you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the price, Jesus, that you paid for us on Calvary's tree that we can be cleaned, that we can be covered that we can be reconciled with God. I pray if there's anybody in this room today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they'd come today and become new creations in Christ Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us and come as God leads?